0: Hey, we're glad you're here this morning. We are, for those who have been coming for a long time or for a little while, you know that we have been working our way through the book of Acts. Uh, I decided to not take a break for the sort of Lent season, but go ahead and just keep going with Acts because it's going to lead us uh, to Easter, and I think it's a perfect kind of lead up to uh, where we're going to go for Easter Sunday and things. So uh, we're just on that trajectory, and we are into week 21, and we're about a third of the way through the book, and we've reached this really kind of critical point. And from this point on, from this Sunday on, history is going to speed up very quickly. So, we spent quite a bit of time in Luke's account in the book of Acts of getting to the place where the Apostle Paul meets Jesus. And once Paul meets Jesus, things are going to unwind pretty quickly historically. And so, for the past few weeks, we've been experiencing this lead up to this incredible moment that Saul, Paul, has when he surrenders his life um, to Christ. So, what we've known thus far is that a uh, kind of a, a massive persecution has broken out against the church, and it began with the, the stoning of Stephen. Uh, persecution broke out, and they scattered the believers all over Judea and Samaria, and this young, sort of incredibly educated, up and comer named Saul, who we also know as Paul, began to take the reins of this kind of persecution movement and his desire was to basically arrest and have killed all of these people that called themselves followers of Christ because these Christians threatened the very way of life of the religious leaders of which Paul was a part, one of the up-and-coming Pharisees kind of in line for some of the highest positions. And so he gets a letter from the chief priests and he is going to go all over the countryside Right, arresting these believers, basically have been put in jail, put on trial for their life, and then most of them would be executed. And so he is on this guided mission, his own guided mission, to go and arrest all these believers. And what we saw in the past couple of weeks as we explored this story was that as Paul was on his way to Damascus, which is a really... Uh, sort of central place to begin this sort of movement of eradicating Christians because Damascus was a cultural hub, a lot of caravans went from there all the way up north to Persia and so the gospel infiltrated Damascus, it was going to spread all over the known world and so Paul began by going, you know what, I'm going to start in Damascus and if I eradicate Christianity there, then we can contain it basically. So he's on his way with a letter from the high priest and this sort of armed guards that went with him to seize and arrest these Christians. And he's walking down the road, and as we saw a few weeks ago, this incredible, brilliant light shone all around him. He fell to the ground, and then Jesus speaks to him out of that light and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response is, Lord, who are you? And, and out of that we see Jesus say, It's Jesus whom you are persecuting. And and Saul's blinded, and he gets up and he's led by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he sits there blind, and he doesn't eat or drink anything. And then the last week we picked up where God spoke to this guy by the name of Ananias, a believer who was there in, in Damascus and said, Ananias, I've got something I want you to do. I want you to go to Saul, right, who is waiting in this house of this guy named Judas down on Straight Street, and I want you to go down to him, and I want you to restore his sight, and I want you to lay your hands on him, right, because I've told him in a vision that there's a guy named Ananias who's going to come and do all this, and Ananias looks at God basically kind of metaphorically and says, are are you crazy, do you know who this is? And all the harm that he has done to your saints all over the known world, do you understand? And God looks at Ananias and basically says, you're going to go anyway. And so Ananias does just that. He goes down to this guy's Judas, his house on Straight Street, and he walks up to, to Saul and he says, brother Saul, right? Uh, God has basically sent me here to restore your sight, to lay my hands on you so that you could be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happens And these scales fall from Saul's eyes. He surrenders his life to Christ. He is baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to eat and drink. And that's where we left off last week. Saul has had his life radically in and, and in an incredible way altered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's going to forever change history, the history of the church, because Paul is going to become the most important figure outside of Jesus himself in Christianity. So from this point on, from that point where Ananias lays his hands on Saul, and Saul takes his own ministry into his hands, his own account into his hands, uh, things change. And so the book of Acts is actually going to progress with that. Well, We're going to look at the first few days and actually years of uh, Saul's life. Or now, I guess we'll start referring to him as Paul, even though the name is is exactly the same, uh, as his movement progresses to take the gospel to the known world. So if you've got your Bible, let's flip over to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to pick up right where we left off last week at verse... Well, kind of in the middle there. uh, Your little your Bible probably splits verse nineteen in half, and so uh, we're going to pick up in the second half of verse nineteen, and we're going to see what happens. And we're going to explore a couple of things this morning. We're going to explore what the the sort of central message that Paul proclaimed in those first days after he surrendered his life to Christ. We're going to explore the total surrender that we're called to engage in when we give our lives uh, to Jesus Christ, and we're going to explore the idea. Or to come to an understanding of the importance of defining the kind of fear um, that we allow into our lives. So we're going to see all these things played out a little bit this morning. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll dive into it together. Lord, we thank you so much for, um, for Jesus. God, we thank you that while we were still powerless, while we were still sinful, while we were still broken, God, you sent your son to give us life. Lord, we thank you that in the middle of our inability to do anything for ourselves, you rescued us. God, we thank you that Paul's life is a picture of that. That while he was on his own sinful, misguided mission, you interrupted his life and you initiated a relationship with him, drawing him to yourself and revealing your plan to him. God, I pray this morning that you would interrupt our lives, that you would initiate relationship with us, and that you would draw us into your plan. So God, teach our hearts this morning. Take a moment right where you sit and ask God to just teach your heart, to instruct your heart a little bit this morning, just to teach you something um, that he wants you to see. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Even if you don't know their name, we do this each week. It's just a reminder to be in the habit of praying for other To us. And so, God, this morning we ask that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. You tell us that it is living and active. God, that it is breathed most literally by you. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us and that we would take our time in your word seriously this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for redemption in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his perfect and holy name. Amen. So we pick up. Um, right at this moment where Paul has been baptized and he's starting to eat again and he has regained his sight, right in the middle of verse 19. Well, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on the name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and uh, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. but Saul learned of their plan day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. but Barnabas. Took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. And it was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. And it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So a lot transpires. It actually looks like just a few moments, but really what we see in those verses goes on about three years. So things are speeding up really rapidly, but here's what sort of transpires. So Paul has had his sight restored. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. He has been baptized. His life is absolutely changed. And we see in that text that at once he gets up and he goes to the synagogue there in Damascus and he begins to preach that Jesus is the Son of God, right? And everyone's baffled because they knew this guy for 20 years of his life. They've known him in Jerusalem as this sort of, from 13 all the way through about 32, they've known him as this highly educated, smart, up-and-coming Pharisee that had sort of the, the whole religious tradition put upon his back. He was the future of Judaism. And they all knew that he had got a letter from the high priest and he had come to Damascus to arrest them and have them killed. And they were confused and baffled that this guy, this person, right, was now preaching that this Jesus was the Son of God and that he indeed was the Messiah. It goes on to say that after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. Now we know from reading Galatians chapter 1 and from Paul's letter to Corinth that this concept of many days is actually the better part of three years. Okay, so And what happens in that three years is really strategic. That God pulls Saul out of Damascus and he takes him to the desert in Arabia and the Holy Spirit begins to instruct Paul's heart and reveal deep truth to him. Paul talks about in the letter to Galatians, he says, this is where I gained this knowledge and truth. The Holy Spirit revealed to me it to me in my time alone in the desert in Arabia. And now we know from compiling these letters that after those many days that Paul's heart has been instructed by the Holy Spirit. So a lot transpires in those first days where Paul's preaching in the synagogues and everyone's confused to some three years later, right, after the Holy Spirit has kind of opens Paul's heart to the mysteries of the risen Christ, right? Many days go by, and the Jews are now tired. They've grown weary of all this, right? They've kind of figured out that Paul's life has radically changed, and they've grown very tired of it, and so they conspire to kill him, right? So Paul goes from being the one that's on the mission to kill Christians to being one of the Christians that is now marked by the Jewish leaders, and they conspire to kill him. But he's developed a relationship of brothers, of fellow believers there in Damascus, and they learn of this plan, and they keep watch over him day and night. And so what the Jews do, the Jewish leaders do, is they wait by the city gates. Because in those days, cities were fortified by walls, right? And there was only one or two ways in and out of every city. We learn a lot about this in Jerusalem. They have these high walls to prevent themselves from being conquered, right? And so they would have gates, and these gates were highly guarded. In order to leave the city, you had to actually pass through the gate. And so the Jewish leaders were like, we won't worry about trying to find Paul. We'll just wait by the gate because eventually he has to come out, and when he does, we'll just kill him. Well, the believers learned this, and so what they did is they take Paul one night, and they lower him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And, and the way these walls worked is they were often built into the surrounding houses. So it wasn't just like an external wall that was sort of thrown up. These, these houses and these adobe kind of uh, structures were built into the wall, and oftentimes the wall would have windows in it. And what the women would often do is they would lower their laundry out the window um, and then they would walk around the city and out through the gate and go pick it up and take it down outside of town where they would do the wash to save the effort from having to lug all that stuff all the way down to the city. And so what seems to happen is that Saul was lowered out of one of these windows in a basket in the middle of the night, right? And it's kind of interesting power switch that take, transpires here, right? I mean, just a short three years earlier, Paul comes marching into town to arrest and kill Christians, and now he's being smuggled out of town with a dirty laundry. The sort of power change is, is really interesting. But but he goes out from one hot situation, one threat, into another, and he goes back to Jerusalem. And he gets to Jerusalem, and he seeks out the disciples there. But the disciples won't have anything to do with him because they're petrified. It says they're all afraid of him because they knew what was going on. They had heard the stories, but they didn't believe it. I mean, what if he was just faking it, right? What if he was using it as a way to infiltrate their ranks and seize them and arrest them, and they wouldn't have anything to do with them, all except for a guy by the name of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas we met way back in chapter 4, and you may remember uh, Barnabas because he kind of was one of those men that sold a field and brought all the money to the apostles and laid it at their feet. You remember that story? He laid the money at their feet, every single cent of it, and he sort of painted, is painted in Scripture as this sort of lovely, beautiful picture of what it means to follow Christ. His, his name actually means son of encouragement. And he seems in Scripture to walk alongside people and speak into their life at all the right times, which is really kind of what we see him do here with with Paul. He's the only one that we see that seems to take an interest, if you will, in Paul. And he comes up to him and basically takes him, physically takes him to the apostles. And when they get there, he begins to speak about him. He begins to tell the apostles that this indeed is the man But Jesus showed up in the middle of his life on the road to Damascus and changed his life. And he talked about how Paul had preached fearlessly, right, in the synagogues in Damascus. And the apostles hear Barnabas' testimony. They hear Barnabas defending this person, and they believe him. And it says that Paul had all kinds of freedom then, and he walked around freely in Jerusalem just as he had done in Damascus. And he preached fearlessly in the name of the Lord. Well, he has a run-in in in the synagogues with the Grecian Jews. Now, you remember probably from Acts 6, there was kind of two major kind of components that make up this sort of regular Jewish people. There were the Hebraic Jews and there were the Hellenistic or Grecian Jews, right? The Hebraic Jews were the Jews that were, were from Judea and Jerusalem, and they spoke Aramaic, and they believed that they were a little bit more Jewish than the Jewish people that were from the Greek-speaking areas, right? They Those were people that were a result of the diaspora. They were spread out when the Assyrians and the Babylonians conquered the southern and northern kingdom. A little history lesson. But they retained their Jewish roots, but they began to speak Greek. And something had brought them back to Jerusalem, either temporarily or they had moved there, but they spoke Greek, and they were Grecian Jews or Hellenistic Jews, and they were the Brake Jews. You may remember that in chapter 6 there was a huge argument um, because... A lot of people, the the Grecian Jews believed that their widows weren't getting as much food, right, as the Hellenistic Jews. Remember that story? And so the apostles raised up Stephen and Philip and seven other leaders to kind of solve their argument. Well, the the Grecian Jews, well, they wanted to kill Paul. And this is really important, and just for a little side note, it's really important, because what Luke's basically saying is that, look, Paul had an in with the Hebraic Jews. That's who he was, right? He was deeply ingrained in the sort of up-and-coming movement of those but even the Greek-speaking Jews, because Paul's from Tarsus, right? He has a Greek connection. Even those Jewish people wanted to kill him, meaning that everybody wanted a piece of Paul. He went from leading these movements to being hunted by these movements. So the apostles learned that the, the Grecian Jews, like everybody else, wants to kill him. And so they take him down to Caesarea, which is a port city, and they put him on a boat, and they send him back to Tarsus. They send him home. Not because home is safe, but most likely because they want him to begin to share the gospel with those who know him most, which may even be more dangerous than being in Jerusalem, and I'll get to that here in a little bit. But they send him back to Tarsus. And then Luke wraps up this whole piece with this statement. The church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So Saul goes on to Tarsus, and the church... Enjoys these moments of growth and peace, sort of bringing this first sweeping movement of persecution somewhat to an end. And it's going to pick up again, and we're going to see it happen very rapidly. But for a moment here, the church experiences this incredible peace and growth, and they're living in fear of the Lord. So as you can probably guess, there's a ton of things that are going on here. This passage covers a three-plus-year span in history, And there's a lot that's happening. And so I want to draw your attention just to a couple of things. The first thing I want to talk about a little bit is is the sort of radical transformation, the message that Paul preached in those first formative days of his life, because it's incredibly important and deeply important theologically for the history of the church. And then I want to talk about the sort of total life surrender that we see happening in in Paul and, and how fear plays a role in our life and how important it is for us to define those fears. So with all that is happening We see Saul's life captured, literally captured, right, by Jesus. And immediately before Saul goes out and spends three years in the desert, in Arabia, he begins to preach in the synagogues in Damascus. And this is really interesting because what is it that Saul's preaching? What is it that Paul is engaging in? Because he hasn't spent 24 hours a day three years in a row with Jesus, In fact, the only encounter we ever see Paul having with Jesus up until this point is that moment on the road in Damascus where Jesus knocks him down, literally blinds him, and tells him to quit persecuting him. And we know that that Paul's only interaction with the other believers were the few short days he was there in Damascus with Ananias and the others when they laid hands on him and restored his sight and baptized him. So what is it that Paul begins to preach? Well, it's really important because it formulates a deep and important theological truth that is going to carry us all the way through 21st century Christianity. We see it played out in two places. So the first thing that we see is when Saul goes to the temple in Damascus, he begins to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, interestingly enough, and most of us kind of wouldn't believe this unless I told you, That the term Son of God, this is the only time it's used here in the entire 28 chapters of the book of Acts. It's the only time. The term Son of God is actually used a ton in the Old Testament, and it refers to two things. Oftentimes it refers to Israel, right? It refers to the coming Messiah. Well, this term Son of God has a lot of weight theologically when you use it with the Old Testament. I'm not going to kind of delve too much into that, but I want you to understand what it's getting at. When you couple it with what comes out of 22 that this Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, Paul is making a very important theological distinction that is going to carry itself deeply into the 4th century, into the Council of Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed comes out of, and all the way up into the 21st century. And that is this. Paul is essentially saying that Jesus, as the Son of God, as the Messiah, is actually God. Now, it's important to understand this, and for those of us that have the full canon of Scripture and raised in church, identifying Jesus as God, very essence God, very nature God, is not, maybe not that big a leap for you. But you've got to imagine being a first century Jewish person, hearing this truth proclaimed, that Jesus, the person, the one that was crucified, not only was the Messiah of the Old Testament had talked about, but was the Son of God, and therefore, in very nature, God Himself. The fourth, in the 4th century, the Council of Nicaea wrote the Nicene Creed to basically push back against the heresy that said Jesus was not God. He was not divine. That his nature as a human, right, was not divine. And so the Council of Nicaea came up with the Nicene Creed, which is one of the two creeds that are pretty much adopted by all of Christianity, regardless of denomination, that basically states that Jesus Christ In all of his nature is divine, that he and God are one, of one essence and one nature. And it leads us into the idea of the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are in fact God. Now the reason this is important is because it was blasphemous to the Jews. The Jewish people wanted no part of believing that this person was actually God. Not just some sort of super moral kind of angel sent down from heaven that was a prophet or had a bunch of words, but that Jesus actually was God in the flesh. And it was a huge proclamation. And the first thing that Paul spoke, right, was not all the theology that we come to associate with him that comes out of the book of Romans and all that kind of stuff, but was probably the most central and important theological idea to ever come across Christianity, and that is this, Jesus was God. And it was what was going to cause the Jewish people to go into an absolute uproar. Because on some level, they would be okay with Jesus being a prophet. But to actually being God in the flesh, well, that's a game changer. And would ultimately end up getting most of the first century Christians martyred. So Paul declaring from the onset that by Jesus being the Son of God and being the Messiah, he is essentially claiming and saying that Jesus himself is God. Just to know that that's where this is going It's also important to know that when when paul gave his life surrendered his life to christ. It was an absolute and total surrender When we give our lives to christ when we surrender our life to the lordship of jesus christ We are giving over a total and absolute surrender now most of us We don't really care for that too much We really want to compartmentalize our lives We want to keep the Sunday life or the sort of Jesus' life or whatever, we want to keep that in a separate compartment outside of our personal life or our professional life or or whatever part of our life is over here, right? We want just enough Jesus to make us feel a little better about ourselves, but not so much to intersect how I spend my money or who I date or what I do on Friday night. And so we want to compartmentalize our lives in order to keep things manageable, right? We don't want too much of Jesus bleeding over into the other things. We don't want our friends to know that we really think these things because we like our Friday nights a lot. And we don't want Jesus and his call to remain pure, to interfere with my relationships because there's a lot of pleasure that I have there. There's a lot of personal and private parts of our lives that we don't want our Christian life to intersect with, so we like to put them into compartments. But following Jesus, as I've talked about numerous times, is a total and absolute surrender. So look at what it cost Paul, right? We see that this total surrender cost Paul his life physically. Not only did Jesus strike and render him blind, but we see Paul's life essentially being threatened from the onset. Threatened by the Jewish people in Damascus, threatened by the town that he used to run and own, basically, in Jerusalem. If you continue reading the book of Acts, which you've come to church with us certain a period of time, we will get through it. You will see Paul's life threatened, shipwrecked, beaten, flogged, nearly killed a multitude of times, and finally, essentially, dies in prison. The total surrender to Jesus cost Paul his life physically. It also cost him his life professionally. You remember, he went 13, he was shipped by his father, right, all the way down to Jerusalem to basically go to seminary to study under a guy by the name of Gamaliel, where he would spend 20 years of his life as perhaps the most educated Jewish person in all of Jerusalem. The equivalent of two PhDs. He was up and coming. By the age of 32, he was poised to take over all the leadership of the Jewish hierarchy. He was in line for roles like high priest. He was on a very short list. Day that Jesus intersected Paul's life, he had to give all of it up. Everything that he had worked for, had pushed himself toward, all of that was worthless now because it was contrary to everything that he was learning and coming to know about who Jesus was. Following Jesus cost Paul his entire professional life because Jesus had a different plan for him. See, most of us, we want to compartmentalize our life, right? I don't want my life in Christ to affect my professional life, and so I keep them totally separate. We don't want to engage that that way. It also cost Paul personally. Think about that for just a moment, what Paul's li- life was like before he met Jesus. He knew everybody. People came to him when they needed things. He was important. He was a huge deal, right? And then three years later, advanced back to his time in Jerusalem, and just for a moment, as Paul walks into the town and he begins to try and connect with the disciples and they're petrified, right? And then he goes, and he goes back to the synagogues and the Jewish people who he knew want to kill him. He's deeply alone. Following Christ cost him all of his personal life, friendships and everything. And so what do they do? They stick him on a boat and they send him back to Tarsus. You think that was easy? You think going back home, telling your father, that all that you've been raised for for the past 20 years is no longer part of your life, I guarantee you his father would disown him because he was deeply Jewish. Even though he was a Roman citizen, he was deeply Jewish. And I guarantee you the rest of his family probably went the same. And can you imagine having to go back home, and maybe some of you have done this, and explaining to your family that things have changed. We saw this transpire when we spent time in China. We'd see students that would give their life to Jesus and have to walk back into their own homes and say, "Listen, I love you, but everything I've been raised to believe is contrary to this God that I met." And we'd meet students whose family disowned them, kicked them out, took their inheritance, wouldn't have any part of them. Following Jesus cost them everything personally. It cost them jobs, it cost them their life. We deeply want to compartmentalize our relationships with Christ so that he doesn't infiltrate all the other areas that we have under our banner of control. The problem is that when Jesus calls us, he calls us to come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it best. He says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die, meaning when he calls you, when he interrupts your life, when he calls your heart, he doesn't call part of it he calls you to come and die to yourself. And Paul himself in Galatians 2 will say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, meaning that my life is dead, and I have given all of it to Jesus. The greatest struggle that you and I will have, I can almost say this without exception, the greatest struggle that you and I have with our relationship with Christ is laying all of our heart down, all of it, because there's always parts that we want to cling to, we want to hold on to, we want to hide not only from Jesus, but from the world. We don't want our Christian people to know the things that we think and do when no one else is around. We don't want the people in our lives to know what I secretly think about myself when I look in the mirror. We don't want the people around us to know the kind of things that I do at work or the kind of people that I engage with on the weekends. Like I hide portions of my life because there is some part of me and pleasure-seeking or something that I like there that makes me feel comfortable even though I know it is tearing me apart. And if I can just keep Jesus over here, and I can keep these things here and this thing here, and I can work out some kind of magic balance, then I've got the best of all worlds. And you know what? It is a lie, and you will live restless, and you will live empty, because you are fighting against what God has called for your life. As long as you try and live with a compartmentalized Christian life, you will forever be restless and empty. It's why you're not feeling fulfilled. It's why you show up at church and you know, this is great. And on Wednesday, you're going, don't like who I am. Because we haven't given this total surrender of everything over to Jesus. Yes, it's costly, personally, professionally, uh, physically. Ask Paul if you could. It cost him everything. But he wouldn't change anything. For the first time in his life, he was deeply fulfilled. And we're going to trace that throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So we see this total surrender. then finally, we've got to define the fear that we allow in our lives. So let me ask you this question, uh, just kind of, you know, rhetorically, what role does fear play in your life? Now, for a lot of us, we may say, well, you know, I don't know, spiders, snakes, roller coasters, whatever. I'm not really talking about like physical fears like that. I'm talking about like deep-seated, real fears. What role do they play in your life? And you may say, Tripp, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really afraid of much. Fear's a funny thing, though. Because fear often masks itself with other things. At the root of things like worry and anxiety and anger and depression is almost always fear. Fear of being exposed, fear of failing, fear of not being able to do things like pay bills or take care of my family or being alone forever. They lead themselves into areas of anxiety and worry. And so oftentimes we, we struggle with things like worry, but we don't recognize that deep within that is a deeper fear that I have, a fear that maybe God just isn't going to provide for me, or maybe that God is going to let me be alone all my life, or, or maybe that God is not big enough to take care of this in me, but he may do it in somebody else, but he never seems to do it in me. Do I really believe that God is who he said he is? Buried deep within a lot of those things, Now, fear plays an important part in this text, if you look at it, from a couple of standpoints. One, when, when Paul goes back to Jerusalem, we see that all the believers are afraid. They're petrified, right? And maybe rightly so. I mean, if Paul's faking it, they are going to die. If they let him into their lives, and he is somehow gone as an undercover brother, right? He is going to arrest them. And they're going to be put on trial for their lives for believing that Jesus is the Son of God, is God himself, which was blasphemy in the Jewish law, and they would be killed because it was punishable only by death. So they were petrified. Well, all of them except for Barnabas, which is kind of remarkable, right? Barnabas, and we don't have any kind of reason to know any otherwise, just seems to buy into it. And so not only does he connect with Paul, but he takes Paul to the apostles and he speaks for him and he defends him. And he tells the apostles how Paul has preached fearlessly the gospel in Damascus. We don't see Paul encounter fear at all. At least it doesn't come up in this text that he was afraid for his life. We see the brothers in Damascus afraid for Paul, lowering him out the window. Paul going back into another hotbed instead of running for the hills, he goes back to Jerusalem, faces those realities. For whatever reason in Barnabas and Paul's life, fear doesn't seem to seize them. But if you look at this in the end of this text, there actually is a fear in Scripture that is not only biblical but deeply necessary for the followers of Christ, right? So look at the end of that statement in verse 31. The church throughout Judea and Galilee, And Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, it being the church, living. And remember, the church is not a physical location. It is the ecclesia, the gathering of people. So this means the people, right? The church, right, was, was encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. All throughout Scripture, we see that term. Fear God. Fear the Lord. Live in fear of God living in the fear of the Lord, right? I've talked about this a lot. In fact, I talked about it when we looked at in week five when we were in the book of Acts. What does it mean to fear God, to literally live in the fear of the Lord? Because we tend to gravitate to the idea that fear is all bad, right? That we should not have a spirit of fear or timidity, but one of power and love and self-discipline as Paul himself tells his disciple Timothy. And that is all true, except there is one fear in Scripture that holds an appropriate place, right? And it's the fear of the Lord. So what does it really mean to fear the Lord? Well, I think it boils down to two things, right? It boils down to reverence and it boils down to worship. Reverence is an idea in our Christian life that we don't pay a whole lot of attention to. Reverence is the idea that I understand who I am in relation to who God is. So reverence is the notion that God is holy and majestic and wonderful and powerful and mighty and amazing and I am sinful and broken. And when I compare those things side by side, I am drawn to a place of reverence, of a, a place of unworthiness, a place that says, God, in your infinite, amazing glory, I am a sinful disaster. And as I've talked about multiple times, our Western Christian culture does not want to acknowledge that. We want to put ourselves on par with God as our best friend, as our buddy, as our homeboy, as our whatever, a God that just sort of covers me when I cry, but doesn't really care if I'm deeply disobedient or sinful. He's like that buddy that just sort of loves you no matter what, even when you make mistakes. He's like, you know what, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. It'll be all right. We treat God that way, a God that is not disappointed or broken over our sin and disobedience, but a God that we can approach and that will sort of wrap his arm around us and just kind of love us because he's our best friend and he's never really going to judge us because he's love after all. Reverence is the understanding that disobedience breaks the heart of God because God is holy and just and mighty and that us in our sinful humanity absolutely deserve God's wrath. And when we realize that truth, reverence becomes a real thing. God, why? Why do you love me? I'm a wretched man. Why do you care for me? Why do you continue to forgive me and when I disobediently betray you time and time again? It's the kind of reverence where, where John looks at Jesus. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and he says, I am not even worthy to untie your sandals. It's the kind of reverence where Moses has to hide his face because if he looks upon God, he will die. That kind of reverence always leads us to one thing, and it's worship. All through Scripture we see it happening. When we recognize that reverence, who God is in comparison to who we are, it leads to... Men and women and families to worship. And not just worship on Sunday morning where we make sure we only spend 30 minutes singing so that I can make my lunch reservation, but literally worship that drives my entire life. That every breath I take, I recognize as worship. It's an attitude of my heart that, God, I want to glorify you in every moment because I am so undeserving of your love and mercy and grace. And the only response I have is to say thank you. Reverence leads us to worship. When you look at the idea of fearing God in Scripture, this is what it refers to. So the church, right, was experiencing this incredible time of peace, and it was strengthened and encouraged because they were living in reverence and worship to the living God. Things are going to change throughout history. But from the creation of the world to the promise of the second coming of Christ, This is the call of the church. It's the call of the Christ follower to live with the right fear in our life. You have to define which fear you are going to allow into your life. And for some of us, we need to take a stand and say, I will not allow that fear, that anxiety, that worship, that lie to put a root in my life. But instead, the roots I will allow will be one of reverence and worship because God, I that as we respond as followers of Christ, we recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning that Jesus himself is God. He rescued me. And that calls me to a total life surrender that leads me to a fear of reverence and worship of the living God. It's why we gather. But it's more than why we gather here. It's why we gather at all. And the challenge becomes to engage in that movement not just for an hour and a half on your Sunday morning or for whatever compartment you decide to put God in, but to knock down those barriers and walls and allow your life to be totally surrendered to the reality of a life that says, God.